0: You're listening to On Air Asia.
1: And one of these guys took us on a tour. It was called the Banda Aceh Tsunami Tour. Wow. And it was basically, you would go to a village to look at where the giant electric tanker had washed in one kilometer inshore. shore. Mm. Um, That was the, the place where he said, okay, this is where like three layers of bodies were buried. And then there was the beach. We were having coconut drink there. And he said, okay, this is where a lot of bodies washed up on the shore. And I was like, this is macabre, you know. Yeah. But they had a very interesting term. They said, every a lot of people I met, they said this. They said, tsunami membawa berkat, which means tsunami brought us luck.
0: Hello, welcome to On Air Asia. My name is Graham Brown. Today, we're heading to some of the more remote areas of Southeast Asia all the way from the Banda Aceh shores in Sumatra up to the hills in the Golden Triangle of North Thailand bordering on Myanmar and Laos. We're following in the footsteps of the AirAsia Foundation and its founder, Mun Ching Yap. We're going to hear her story and share some of the challenges and overcomings and helping support social enterprises across Asia and we're also going to talk about how they help rebuild societies in the face of adversity everything from tsunamis to deforestation but ultimately these are human stories and stories of the human spirit and hope so without further ado I'd like to introduce my next guest Munching Ya
1: Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here.
0: Well, it's great to have you here. I want to learn a little bit about your world, mm-hmm. because AirAsia Foundation, you support a lot of social enterprises across Asia. And you do it not necessarily so much from behind the desk. You're out there at the front line, exploring yeah. these places, understanding what's going on, and quite remote places as well. You just got back from Aceh yeah. in Sumatra. That's right. Not everybody knows where that is. So maybe we can start by talking about that, where it is and why you ended up there.
1: Okay. Well, Aceh has quite a special significance for me. It's right on the tip of Sumatra, on the northern tip. It's quite near to KL. It's only about an hour and a half on AirAsia. Um, and we have a grant program there and it started in 2018. So what AirAsia Foundation does is we give grants to social enterprises. And, you know, as long as you're registered in Southeast Asia and ASEAN, you have two years of of track record, you can apply for one of our grants and, you know, if it looks good, we, we give you some money and then we'll help you grow the business mm. as well. So this one came in from um, an organization called Natural Aceh. So Natural Aceh was set up by six environmentalists. So they are young Achenese, um well, they're, they're in their 30s now, but it started it when they were in their 20s because um, if you recall 15 years ago, um, there was the massive mm. tsunami, the Asian tsunami, which killed um, I mean the estimates vary, but between 150 thousand to 200 thousand in Aceh alone. Um, and so these young kids were were survive this. I mean, it's really horrifying when you talk to them because when even today when you talk to them and they recall what happened, um, you can see the fear in their eyes. Right?
0: Mm. Did they all experience it? directly? They did.
1: I mean, he was talking to me about you know how he was on a motorbike with his mum. In the back, trying to get away from the water. And in the rearview mirrors, he could see a wall of black water coming at him. Oh, boy. And the thing that stuck with him, he said, was the sound. It was basically the screams and, you know, the sounds of cars crashing into Mm. things. So, that was…
0: Because they had no warning, did they? There was um,
1: no… There was no warning. And and he, you know, it was interesting because he told me about his story because he came from this island which… I had experienced a massive tsunami some years before, many many years before, and it was inbuilt built into the folklore of the village. So the mothers would sing a song to their children on what to do if you if you feel this. Right. So that's how when they felt it, his mother said, "We gotta run." So he put his mother on the back of his motorbike and just ran.
0: So right. they would have experienced tsunamis yep. before. And that's what's passed down from, from generation, right? Yeah. Correct.
1: But there are a lot of people in the city who are not originally yeah. from these places and that's why nobody were really was really prepared for what happened. In fact, it was really hard anyway. The waves went up to about forty meters, so where can you run? Yeah. Right. So um in his case, he and six of these young friends um saw that you know, there was like a deluge of NGOs that went into Aceh. Um, and this, this connects to kind of a digression. So around that time, it was tw- 2005 and 2006. Um, I used to do a completely different job. I was the route planner for AirAsia. So, um, the UN had sent a representative to AirAsia and said that, um, to Tony and said, you know, we really like AirAsia to fly to Aceh because we need a lot of, people to come in for reconstruction and rebuilding and we really don't have a flight. You have to go via Jakarta and it's three hours plus. It's really expensive. So if AirAsia can do it, it'll be really great. So Tony sends me to go and check it out. And I get there um, and it was like really eye-opening. We had, um so I had a colleague from my our, our distribution department. We went along and we were arranged to meet a few people and one of these guys took us on a tour. It was called the Banda Aceh Tsunami Tour. Wow. Yeah, and it was bizarre. It was like a tourism thing. But Was that was
0: that like a packet? No, was yeah, that for yeah. other people as well, or not just for you?
1: Well, he was thinking of doing that as a tour. <sighs> and it was Boy. basically you would go to a village to look at um, where the giant electric tanker had washed in one right. kilometer inshore. Mm. Um there was the the place where he said, Okay, this is where like three layers of bodies were buried. And then there was the beach. We were having coconut drink there and he said, Okay, this is where a lot of bodies washed up on the shore. And I was like, "This is macabre," you know. Yeah. But they had a very interesting term. They said every a lot of people I met. They said this. They said tsunami membawa berkat, which means tsunami brought us luck. If you survived it, that is right. Yeah. So after that, a lot of NGOs went in and they rebuilt the entire place. And if you actually were from Aceh, you get a house. You know. So for them who survived, um, they they benefited from a lot of this assistance. So anyway, so they came to us and said, you know, we need to flight in. So we went in there and I I looked at it. And I was like, hmm, well, we, I don't know if I can attract people to do this, right? But um there were was some attractions like diving was really great in Aceh. Um So we said, okay, Tony said, let's try it. So I said, okay, we'll do it, but we'll do it three times a week. Um, and he said, this guy's in the Achenese government said, no, 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 you can't do it two times a week. You can't feel the flight. At most, you can do two times a week with 50 seats. So I said, well, I don't have 50 seats. My planes are 180 seats. Yeah. You got to do it three times a week and we're willing to try it. So let's make it, do it, make it, do it. And let's see whether it works. So, you know, there were all sorts of challenges. We get there. There was no international terminal. It was a tiny little domestic terminal. We had to tell them, okay, this room that you have is a storeroom, cut a hole in the wall. That's your international terminal. Wow. So when you get it there. Is that basic? It was just a domestic terminal. You know, had a long runway because they did harsh flights from there. Mm. But, you know, the facilities were very basic. So the first time, even when we started the flight, the baggage would all be thrown into one room and you get into the room and you dig for your bag. Mm. So you know, that's how it was started. And then later, of course, you know, all this development happened and it's great now. So from three flights a week, you know, within six months, um, it was one of the highest profit, profit per kilometer route that we had in the mm. network, you know, because we didn't realize what a pent-up demand that was. People needed to leave for medical care, for education. Um, NGO families um, started moving their families to KL because they could have international schools and it was easy to fly to. Um, a lot of traders were able to come to KL to buy goods and bring it back to Aceh. So it really stimulated a lot of the local economy. And I love that. I, I mean, I was a journalist. I love that story. But that was kind of the extent that we could do. So that was the Aceh story. So I kind of left it. And then I went to do my social enterprising. I was really glad when I saw this application came in from Ache, you know. So then I said, okay, let's book a flight and let's go to Aceh. And you know what? We have three flights a day to Aceh now.
0: It's very easy, isn't it, when you study these societies across Asia, to look at them from afar, from behind a desk or within a textbook. But let's talk about hands-on experience. In this next section with Mun Cheng, we talk about actually empowering women and making a difference in people's lives by getting involved. What does that mean? But at the time, you were a route planner. Yes. You weren't running... AirAzor Foundation. No. And at the time, I don't know the job of a route planner, but I guess yeah. you're just running the economics, the numbers on routes. Yeah. And, and occasionally you would go there and check them out and see what the facilities were like as well.
1: Yeah, it was, well, it was very, really very basic at the time, right? Because I think a lot of people see a lot of kind of glamour in these big routes, like, oh, KL Hong Kong and all that. But that's really easy mm. because it's so developed. All I need to do is get a slot and then you can fly to Hong Kong. But when you go to a place like Aceh, they didn't have international airport taxes even. So you got to have a suggestion. Okay, what would be a right tax to put in? Mm. So we will go in there. We'll have five people on my my team, two guys from our Indonesian government department. We have somebody from our distribution department, somebody from our ground services. We'll just go there. Three days, we do everything. We'll meet people. We meet the press. You know, it was um, just after we've gathered all this information, we come back and mm. then we cascade it down to each of the individual departments. Mm. And then... They pick it up and take it from there.
0: And how did that then morph into what you do now? So where is what sort of flipped, and what was the point where you thought actually, what I'm doing here, I want to get more involved. I want to help these people beyond simply giving them a flight plan and an airport that functions.
1: Well, that was kind of a personal interest that I have. Like I, I really wanted to do something more. I always loved exploring Southeast Asia, and because. Mm. Um, my interest in develop development e- economics as well was something I want to do beyond that. So, um, well, the root planning job I did for four years and then I, I got bored. <laughs> I got bored and then I said to Tony, I'm going back to school. So right. I went back to university. Um, I studied uh, international relations and then I came back, didn't quite know what I wanted to do. But I thought, okay, I like that social element as a journalist but I also like the business rigor of what I did in Eurasia so how do I merge that so I said okay I think I need to start a social enterprise mm. um, so then I thought okay I need money where do I get money hello Tony
0: <laughs> right so, so he was on board did you pitch him the idea
1: I pitched him a, a, a different idea I wanted to open my own social enterprise mm. so I pitched him that idea like okay this is my business plan he says like oh this is great I, I always wanted to support social entrepreneurs but I don't have the time mm. so why don't you set up a foundation, and we'll put resource behi- resources behind it. Um, so I thought, hmm, that wasn't exactly what I asked you for, but okay, let's give it a shot, right? right. Um, and it just grown organically from there. So so like in the Ache case, I was able to return. So this is a village that is at the coast that was hit very badly. I mean, more than half of the people just were killed. Um, so one of these communities... Is are these women so it's a fisherman village so the the men would go out to fish and the women would stay at home and they have to take care of their kids and the only way they can make some income was that they would used to roam the mangrove forest and they pick up oysters so and they would sell that in the market but with the tsunami the mangrove forest was completely destroyed and they had to walk for eight hours a day to look for these crustaceans that they would sell for like ten bucks or something you know Mm -hmm. And um, so this NGO came up with this idea that we're gonna set up artificial oyster farms um, where you know you will put these tires, these old tires and the oysters will just stick on it. So they didn't have to roam anymore and they can grow their own oyster crop. So we gave them a grant for that. And so we went to have a look and it was amazing. I mean, it was beyond what we expected. We thought there would be like 25 women involved but there are now 40 women involved. Um, you could see how empowered they became. It's not a huge amount of money not for us for sure and not for them I mean to me what they earn is not a huge amount but it made a huge difference to their lives right it made a huge difference to themselves as people like they feel really empowered Mm. they became um, you know leaders in their own community Um, they are very close-knit so I think that is something that I find extremely rewarding you know and then with the oysters, they also develop different types of products. They have oyster crackers, oyster nuggets, you know. And then when I went there, I said, okay, I want to know what kind of oyster dishes can you make? So they came up with five delicious oyster dishes. I thought, wow, this will be great for a restaurant. Maybe Share that's one. something we could do. you know do. one? Um, it was turmeric stir-fried oysters.
0: Switching focus from one hunger to another now. We're going to move from food to entrepreneurship and the importance of entrepreneurship in creating social impact. And Möncheng is going to help us understand the difference between social enterprise and charity and the importance of entrepreneurship in innovation. And you know what? You don't need to be a Silicon Valley entrepreneur to be innovative. Often, some of the most innovative people are the ones you least expect these could be people who didn't receive a traditional education and they innovate out of necessity they have the hustle they just need the right support yeah so they're a little bit entrepreneurial as well i Very. mean they've got that hustle isn't it yes. so i want to come back to that point you've mentioned these words and for those listening they probably want you to help clarify you've mentioned ngo you've mentioned social enterprise mm. and maybe people are thinking charity as well. Mm. So help us understand because you know this space very well. They're not all the same. You know, you've talked mm-hmm. about people going in and helping areas that are completely wiped out. Yeah. How so, does it all work?
1: Yes, that, that's, that's always one of the biggest challenges in what I do. Like The definition is always very, you know, fluid. Um, NGOs, okay, just means non-government organizations. Charities typically will take money from donations whether they get it from the government or the public and they will do something with it so it could be running a home for um, elderly or orphans or they could use that to fund some programs to train pe- uh, people with disabilities um, but they don't expect any return so they mm. depend on you know this money coming in to help them continue and maybe about 15 20 years ago that there you know sort of a new movement has come up um which is called social entrepreneurship and the entrepreneurship part brings a financial element into it, it says that you have to be self sustaining um you can't continue to rely just on donations because de- i mean it really depends on somebody's mood i feel like donating yeah. today or not so you have to have some level of independence and how do you do that is try to find a way to make it a business so if you are working with people with disabilities to make a craft product can you sell that craft product and use the profit that you earn from it to continue paying for what you do so that's the very very basic model but now there are so many different types of models in Southeast Asia of what a social enterprise is um, mm. and so
0: we start with that social yeah. enterprise compared to a charity model yeah. so people understand it does that have a different outcome for example if you were to just give people money yeah. like those those women foraging yeah. for oysters yeah. or you were to say to them Hey look we're going to give you a grant but we want you to be self sustaining does that create a different kind of behavior and it does those so people?
1: if you are giving just if i was giving it just as a charity so you could just train the ladies to say do their own oyster farm mm. and then that's it and you wouldn't know whether they actually go ahead and do it. And that's one of the failures of many of the training programs. You can give them this training, but without the capital, without the mm. equipment, they just can't continue. They may not be able to afford it as well unless you come in to also make sure that they have that um, and the skills they need to continue growing it. So that's where we come in. Like it, it's not just about giving them the money. So we come in, we tell people about their stories. We try to see if we can get the food out to be sold somewhere else. We look at what their next needs are. So the next need is they've got the oysters. They need a production center, you know? So how do we give them the equipment that they could have this production center? So now they are selling these, uh, oyster products that they have in the markets. Can we get them, you know, into bigger supermarkets? And after you've set this up, It runs by itself. Hmm. So it's just an investment from us for a year, two, three years. And then it runs by itself. I don't need to go back and give them money anymore because they generate themselves.
0: And are they the ones who are driving the innovation? Are they saying, what about if we produced oyster oil or oyster products? Is that coming from them?
1: This one definitely came from them. So there was a very enterprising lady. You know, she made crackers and things. We were like, wow.
0: Um,
1: But… You know, it, it's a two-way thing. So they have these great ideas, but we also come in to tell them, okay, this idea really works. This idea, maybe not so much. Um, and we bring in, you know, the experience that we have. So there are some people who came in and say, Oh, we want to do this sort of product. I said, mm, this one, you might need different sort of, um, standards. Right. So if you want to sell it on AirAsia, for example, it's not just a matter of me taking it and selling on AirAsia. You need to have halal certification. You need to have health and safety. So. Then you line up a plan. Okay. If you want to achieve that, you have to make sure you get these and you have to clean up your production. You have to make sure that it, you know, abides by these standards. So that is part of the capacity building that we offer them as well.
0: That's the, the technical knowledge you can train them. The sort of the internal spirit of enterprise is there. That one you can't train. Exactly. But it's there. I mean, you, you, I know a lot of people look now at entrepreneurs coming out of business school but here in asia and southeast asia there's so many of for example women as well Mm. who are typically outside of the mainstream of business they have the hustle they're clever they can innovate and they can sell for sure but they just need somebody to give them a start right
1: absolutely i mean not everybody is born to be an entrepreneur i think the the discussion on the narrative now is very skewed towards like go to silicon valley culture and yeah. like be an entrepreneur earn as much money as you can but not everybody is suited for that it needs an element of risk taking um, I'm not a risk taker. So I kind of feel very comfortable with this environment where I'm in air Asia, but I can do these things. But if you ask me to go out and set it on my own, I mean, I don't know if I would do that.
0: So you're talking about selling products through AirAsia as well. yeah? And we just chatted off air. I mean, I took a flight. We came in this morning from yeah. Singapore to KL. Mm. I missed the opportunity of sampling the coffee. Aww. So there's a story behind that. We're yes. going to switch focus from Aceh to Thailand. Yeah. So if you're listening in flight, Sample this coffee because there's a story behind it. So maybe you can tell that. Yeah, uh, it's
1: a brilliant story. So there's this farmer called Jakapong Mong Kong Kri, right? So it's. Okay. Clear. I'm glad
0: you, you said that. I yeah. didn't try that one.
1: So Jakapong is from the Musa Hill tribe. So that's a hill tribe that is, that lives in the northern parts of Thailand on the borders near, near Myanmar. And uh, they used to be known as the Black Lahu and quite a fierce tribe. In fact, they have a, a two New Year's. They celebrate two New Year's. One when just with the women because the men have all gone fighting. fighting. Yeah. And then when the man, men come back and they have another celebration. So these are all inbuilt into their culture. So um, this whole area um, was part of the Golden Triangle. So his family, they all grew opium Yeah, um, just really about 50, 60 years ago. So about 50 years ago, the king of Thailand, uh, the late king, King Pumibo came to th- visit these areas and he had a, they had a social compact. And they said, okay, you have to stop growing these, but we'll help you switch onto different types of crop. So then Thailand had this big program to change them onto different types of cash crop and one of which was corn. And it did well for a long time, but then it not, it did not continue to thrive because you know, corn is really used for animal feed. So the the re- returns are really small and it's not native to the area. So in order for you to grow corn, you have to deforest the whole area. You know, you have to use all your GM seeds and pesticides and chemicals and it ended up poisoning the environment. And the hill slopes are all bare. So Jakapong was somebody with a different vision. He's a community leader and he, his the folklore of these hill tribes are always very intertwined with stories of the environment and the spirits and, you know. So he decided, okay, I have to rehabilitate my forest, but I need to find a way that I can also live off it. So he started exploring with shade grown crops. So these are crops that have to be grown under a canopy of trees. And he discovered that coffee can be grown as one of them. So he started rehabilitating his forest, grew the trees, and then he had his coffee shrubs below. And, and then he started working with the University of Chiang Mai to come up with better better strains of coffee. And he convinced like his fellow farmers to do the same. So he set up this company called Musa Coffee Hill. He buys his coffee from them and then he resells them to the middleman. And then he realized that, okay, if he wanted to continue paying them fair fair trade uh, wages or prices, he needed to up the value of his products, his beans. And one way of doing it is to roast the beans. So he needed that. He had a little roaster. And that's where we met him, you know. Mm. So we went there and it's like this roaster only about one meter long. It's tiny, it's manual. And he has his wife who has to stand there and watch as the beans turn color. So it was totally inefficient and he was only getting a small output out of it and it's irregular in terms of quality. So we gave him a grant and he bought this like brand new machine. It was automated. He could just put, you know, I'm going to roast it. 20 minutes later, this thing comes out nicely. You know, so that changed the quantity of roasted beans that he had, right? Then we thought, oh, now he has a new problem is that he needed more distribution channels because mm-hmm. he couldn't just rely on the same two or three people. So I happened to be in Thailand. Two things happened. One was I just came back from Japan and you know, Japan had these drip coffee sachets yeah. where you just hook over your cups. So I had him in my bag, and I just brought it out. He was like, "Wow, what is this?" So he was totally fascinated. I said, "Oh, this is what they are selling in Thailand, uh, in Japan." So he said, "Okay, can I have it?" So he took it. One year later, and I met him. He had his own. He went and found a supplier to give him these, to get these sashes, and he All made right. his own. So at the so I was also meeting with the Thai, um, the CEO of Thai AirAsia, Chakapong I was telling uh uh Tun uh sorry. Uh, names, um, and he was. Te- I told him about what we were doing, and he said, "You know, I want this on on our flights. Get this on our flights." So I was like, "Okay, stress, pressure, right? How do we do this?" So we went to the in-flight department in Thailand, and they s- connected them, and they started working together. So they worked with Jakapong to come up with the, the right taste that fits, you know, in on-board um, catering. And within like a year, we we started selling these coffee. So uh, initially it was a drip coffee just off his, but then um, regionally we also decided that we needed to do it across the region. So what the regional group did was the regional group started working with him to get a certified halal for our flags here. And this product now, the drip coffee, um, we source the beans from him, not fully, but also depends on his production quantities, so we source part of the beans from him, and it's now selling on area. Oh, so whatever you're doing, you know, has an impact on. And through after 40 years, he regenerated the forest. They have clean water. They can grow vegetables. Um, the hill tribe has the hill tribes have their own market in the north that sells wonderful fresh vegetables, avocados, things like that. And mm. so this this is really what that coffee means, you know.
0: want to change somebody's day, teach them a tip. If you want to change somebody's future, teach them a story. The real impact of foundations, like those of AirAsia, goes beyond the money, the support and the infrastructure that they put in place. The lasting impact is their ability to give these people a voice. And that's what I want to talk to munching about. now, the role of story. How does that actually affect the local environment? You've already talk, talked about reforestation. Yep. How does it then affect the local people? Because I'm a great mm. believer that teaching that kind of growth at a local level is all about what kind of stories do we have to relate to. It's all very well reading about people like Mark Zuckerberg in the mm. media. Mm. But for these people, it doesn't mean anything like mm. to them. But they now have somebody who's like a local hero – well, who it affect- employs people. So how does that affect things? Oh, it
1: affects them very, very directly because the area that they are staying in has been declared as a national park some 20, 10, 20 years ago by the Thai uh, government. And if it's in a national park, it actually means that you can't live there you have to be evicted from the forest. And that's where they have lived for generations. So this is an issue about land rights for the Hill Tribe as well. Mm. So they are able to convince, using this project, they are able to convince the national government that, look, we are actually good for your reforestation project. You know, we help you regrow. We can stay there. We can help you. Because we regrow the forest, we get the water clean as well. That's exactly what you want as a national park. And so they have come to this sort of agreement that they, they stay there in the national park. And I think that is the real impact on their lives. You know, mm. much more beyond like how much money we are making. It's really about very, very basic thing about how much land security that they have mm. as people living on the margins of society.
0: How does the coffee taste?
1: Good. Very good. You have to try it. There's only one I have anyway now. Yeah. You know, my is mission that
0: on all of flights? I think so. Ones?
1: I think so. No, okay. all should be all. But, um, you know, it's, it doesn't stop there because obviously he's, he he only has a certain production quantity. I'm also looking for other ones in Southeast no. Asia. I found one in uh, Sumatra near Medan, um, one in Vietnam, um, another in Indonesia. So we hope one day we will be bring all these together so that the coffee that you get on board AirAsia all have these sort of little stories. Yeah, no, I love it. Yeah.
0: Now if you've made it this far into the podcast, you're probably interested in this space. You're probably interested in the work of people like Munching Yap. So you might be asking, how do I get into this space? It's not easy, but stick around because I'm going to talk to Munching about some of the mindsets and the tips to get started. How do you make an impact? Hill tribes, yeah. deforestation, you know, water tables, quantity and all that sort of stuff, which you don't talk about necessarily in the economics mm-hmm. classes. How does it feel now you've gone full circle with that? I think the training that I had in
1: economics, it had come out in the really unexpected ways, you know, like the very basic things you learn about supply and demand. Actually, that got me the job at AirAsia because I, I, I was... You know, when I was studying in Eric, uh, I was studying economics at, at the LSE in London. And then one day, the person who gave, came and gave a talk was Stelios. Uh-huh. From EasyJet. Yeah. And he really broke it down to the bare economic principles like supply and demand, you know, uh economic economies of scale. That's why we have one fleet type. That's why we have one fleet type, so we have only one pilot type. So you don't duplicate, you don't waste, you know. And how do you manage your supply-demand? That's why your your elasticity, you know, all these concepts that's so so basic to, you know, an economic student. And that really showed you how it's being applied in the real world. And I mm. thought that was fantastic. So then later when, as a journalist, I had gone to interview Tony on, to grill him on some controversy, of course, that was happening in relation to Singapore, actually. I um, will tell you that later. Um, so then he said, how do you know so much about the low-cost industry? He said, I don't. I attended this one talk and yeah. it really clicked in my mind. And he said, well, that's really good. You should come and work for me. And that's kind of how I got, my job in Eurasia.
0: That's how it started. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So today when I, when I do this, a combination of all the things that I had, like this economics background. So if you show me a set of numbers, you can fool me. I would drill you down to the Mm. questions. But also as a journalist, I mean, I'm, I'm naturally curious about a lot of social issues. So I, I, if, if you are doing this job, you have to be really well read, right? You, you could one day be working something on the environment, someday on heritage, another day on animal conservation. So you have to be able to get to know the subject matter in a short time and be able to ask the right questions. And that's really the journalism training that came into it.
0: Absolutely. I'm sure people listening will be thinking, how do I get into this space? Because mm. they'll listen to these stories about Aceh and up in the north of Thailand and think, I want to help. I want to do something. Mm. Everybody has some kind of skills. They might not be economists. Yeah. But what's the starting point? Because there must be young people listening you know, right. going through university thinking, I'm doing an academic degree. I want to do something that has an impact. I think yeah. they don't know when to start necessarily. So what are the sort of easy steps there? Well,
1: I don't know if I have a kind of like a step-by-step to offer because I didn't start with any plan in mind that I will end up here. I just hmm. always chose what I really enjoyed and I just ended up here. I mean, this job didn't exist when I came in here. I created it and it could have taken many directions, but this was the direct direction that it ended up because this is what I Passionate in, and I'm interested in. So, I I I find it, you know, always a bit difficult when people ask me like, oh, how do you get there? So I think it really boils down to what you are interested in. They see my job really as just the glamour part where you are traveling. But if you know the way I have to travel, sometimes you wouldn't actually think it's that glamorous. You know, you're sitting in a van with like a Vietnamese man, his feet right in front of you. You know, we we keep it really low cost. It's not like, yeah. this is back to where it was in Air Asia. I mean, I definitely don't hire a car or sit in the public bus mm-hmm. and I'll get to these locations. And it's tough sometimes, you know. And, I, I, and I'm and i not naturally a countryside person, you know, but I do it anyway. So this is part of the job that you, you, you also learn. You learn something about yourself. You learn to improve yourself. But I think you ca- have to get away from the idea that I just want to do what I would like to do. Yeah. And as long as you know there is a balance of everything that you need to do, you should get there. Um, you have to build your own careers, basically. You may not necessarily have to start your own social enterprise, but you can be within government, you can be within uh, public uh, private sector, but it's really what you do with your job. I'm also sick of people thinking of you know CSR as something that is a kind of token that you do so that you can take a picture and put it in your annual report. If all companies have so much resources if you have the right person to come in there and drive that it could really change the dimension of how we do things right how companies do yeah, things
0: absolutely i think you mentioned the right person in you've alluded to it as well like sitting on the van in the van yeah. like doing the the unglamorous parts of what you do right and i think there's that real desire to be outside of your comfort zone mm-hmm. in some respects and that creates and i see this with entrepreneurs that empathy for people Mm. the fact that you're not in an air conditioned bus and you are out there experiencing what they experience Mm -hmm. you can understand what their challenges are and i I get that feeling as well i met tony in the hawker center in so newton hawker center in singapore (laughs) you know just having a casual dinner (laughs) friday night with his wife you know when he could have been at the hotel meeting, but he was out there with the people Mm. and i think I get that feeling about AirAsia as well, in the mm. sense that if you really want to help people, you have to be willing yourself, not just to tell people to help, you have to be willing to walk the walk as well yourself. Yeah. So, if you're in this space, you know, social enterprise, you have to want to go to these spaces, these places, yeah. and talk to people yeah. and go to the hill tribes. And Correct. Then, there may not be ho- hotels up there, right? There so, aren't.
1: You have to stay in a hut. Right. You know, there are no hotels in many of the places that I stay in. And certainly, in, you know, no hot water, no, you know, you eat whatever they serve you and you have to be polite. You can't say, oh, I don't like to eat this, you know. So we've, we've, we've had, you know, lunches with hill tribes where we have to drown cups and cups and cups of strong rice wine. Oh, yeah. Simply because it's rude to not do that. You know, they, they, they prepared a huge feast for us and, and to us it's a normal meal They had a chicken and all this but this is really costly for them to do that and they've done that for you so you have to be respectful of what other people have done for you as well so I think there's a certain humility that you have to bring in when you go into these places and I really like people to do that when they do travel out of the you know, the cities as well yeah. and not expect that you're going to bring in your, you know, fancy gadgets and where's my plug to plug in my thing for my IG. PowerPoint.
0: Well I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Munching Yap as much as I am. But you're probably wondering what comes next. For somebody who likes a challenge, it's not over yet. There must be more. So in the next section, rounding up, let's find out what the next chapter in the Air Asia story is.
1: So, well, what I'm doing next, the future plan is actually more Prozac than running around. But we do want to expand the grants. So what we're going to do firstly on the grants is we're going to do it in a lot more languages. I'm trying to get a bigger team from, you know, with people from Thailand and Indonesia so that we can reach out to people who don't speak English. Now, it's a little bit tricky. I speak Basa, Indonesia, so that's fine. But, you know, Vietnamese and Lao and all that. So we're trying to, you know, reach, a make a broader reach to these places as well. But the second the second thing that we're doing is very exciting, which is really to build new platforms. And that's a new shop. So we are opening our first social enterprise hub in KL. And that's happening in August. It's going to have a restaurant. It's going to have a shop. And this shop will have products from social enterprises from all around the region. We have 30 to 40 suppliers or vendors, the social enterprise that we source from. So we don't necessarily give all of them a grant. Some of them are our grantees, but a lot of them just need a help to be able to sell. And then we have the restaurant. The whole idea of the restaurant is they have to be able to use the food produced from our farmers. So the coffees will be there, the rice farmers who whom we're supporting. Um The only way you really enjoy the food will be first you have to taste it first. Then if you like it, you can buy it next door. And then we'll have a event space. So we hope to be able to host many, many social entrepreneurs in KL um, where they can have a direct interaction with the public. So you don't really have to hear it from me. You can come and meet them, um, go for a workshop from them, talk to them, how they started. But this doesn't end here. Of course, we hope to be able to replicate this in different cities as yeah. well. So each city should have um, its own content, its own people. Um, it will be a place for the community. And I think this is one of the kind of broader platforms that we could do because working on the ground is great, but... Be, with the amount of time that we put in, we, we cannot reach so many people. So this is a different as, approach to to sort of broadening what we can do for social entrepreneurs as well.
0: Mm. And mm-hmm. to the point about where, how do people get involved, yeah. that's probably a great place to start yes. go there. Does it have a name yet? It's called Destination Good. Destination Good. So it'll be Destination Good, Destination Food, you know, so okay. everything in there. And will you be there? Desti- I will be there. Right.
1: I, I hope to have my office there.
0: <laughs> okay. So if anybody listening to this is going to destination good. Yes. Reach out. Say hello to Mun Cheng. Say that you've listened to this story.
1: Yeah, I know. We might give you a cup of coffee from uh yeah, exactly. right?
0: That would be great. Yeah. Hey, listen, it's been really um inspiring talking to you and learning a bit about Air Asia foundation Thank and you. your projects as well yeah and i'm sure this is not the end of the adventure this is just the beginning There's no
1: l- i'd love to bring you to some of the villages that you can talk to the people there directly you know get their stories out yeah. um that would be fantastic
0: excellent so where do we find out more about airasia foundation for those who have listened to this and want to know mm-hmm. the next steps obviously destination good is one yep yeah where well, else can you go online
1: we have a website it's com. but if you're on board rocky.com would have a channel we have a destination good channel on the entertainment portal so you can watch the videos about the social entrepreneurs you can buy the products rocky on rocky as well yeah there's some products also on the in-flight catalog but you know we're going to have a web store coming up soon so that's also called destinationgood.com so you can you shop you it covered yeah
0: and one last shout out to the yeah. coffee yes what's the name of the coffee if you're in flight oh it's,
1: it's not it's uh, on in flight this is just it's called the tea and cold coffee the drip coffee right not the three in one
0: the drip coffee gotcha yeah that is Munting Yap, everybody from uh, AirAsia Foundation thank you so much for sharing your story with us today thank it's you it's a real um, pleasure and I've enjoyed the adventure I feel I've lived a little bit vicariously mm-hmm. through your adventures as well and love to get an update at some point in the future and maybe see what else you're working on and some of the other stories that you have to share. Thank you. You've been listening to On Air Asia. We were joined by Munching Yap of the Air Asia Foundation. Now, if you're sitting listening to this in flight, you can check out some of the products that Munching was talking about. Now you feel a bit more connected to them because you should know the stories behind them. And also, if you're interested in finding more about the AirAsia Foundation, go and check out the website as Munching shared. And if you're in KL, check out Destination Goods. My name's Graham Brown. Thank you for joining me on this journey. It's not the end. Hopefully, there'll be more adventures with AirAsia.